Hello, and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Welcome to episode seven of Lens, in which I'm joined by David Elstein and Adam Singer, two of my predecessors as chairs of the British Screen Forum, or the British Screen Advisory Council, as it was then known. Both David and Adam have had distinguished careers in UK broadcasting and beyond, both as senior executives and through vigorous engagement in public policy debates. They are trenchant but constructive critics of all things public service broadcasting, arguing that PSB has been in systematic decline for many years and that its supporters are in denial about its future. Delighted today to be joined by two previous chairs of what uh, was the British Screen Advisory Council, it is now the British Screen Forum. Uh, so delighted to be joined by David Elstein and Adam Singer. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, by way of introduction for uh, for people who don't necessarily know, uh, David was chair of uh, BSAC from 1997 till 2008, former chair of Open Democracies Board. Uh, but in the context of today's conversation, uh, launched Channel 5 as, as its chief executive, uh, head of programming at BSkyB, director of programs at Thames Television, managing director of Primetime Productions and Brook Productions, and his career as a producer and director, which started at the BBC, include production credits on World at War, This Week, Panorama and Weekend World, amongst others. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, your reputation as being an outspoken, constructive critic of all things PSB. Uh, so uh, looking forward to your views on uh, on what's happened and, and what should happen next. Um, and Adam uh, worked in broadcasting and telecoms in the UK, France, US and Japan, uh, launched the Discovery Channel in Europe, helped create UK TV with the BBC, uh, former chairman and CEO of Flextech when it was sold to Telewest before becoming CEO of Telewest, uh, and as COO of the Denver-based Telecommunications Inc, TCI, launched TV and cable systems around the world. So uh, two blokes steeped in um, commercial broadcasting and distribution and uh, public service broadcasting. You've both presented to uh, to Parliament and select committees on these topics. Um and really, the purpose of these conversations is we're, we're, we're getting people back together who've helped shape the last two or three decades um, and sort of understand the contours of what's been built so that as we think about what needs to come next, we were at least clear what PSB was for so that if we need to start again with a blank sheet of paper, we can hopefully design something that will uh, will recreate the benefits of it. So I'm going to start with the easy one. Um your definition of what public service broadcasting is and what it's for. David, why don't we start with you? Well, public service broadcasting is essentially uh, a function of spectrum scarcity. Uh, in other words, um, over the many decades when uh, access to spectrum, broadcast spectrum was limited and spectrum was regarded as something owned by um, the public, the government, however you wish to uh, uh, represent it, um, anyone who was accorded uh, access to scarce spectrum was expected to uh, pay a price for it, and that could be a cash price, but more uh, obviously in the case of the BBC was a price in terms of the type of content that was going to be delivered. Um, and that was inherited by ITV when ITV was created. 
Uh, in fact, there were no license fees when ITV first started. Uh, all that was required was um, uh, a, a degree of commitment to public service content genres, uh, as well as certain other values, uh, which were uh, more general, uh, high quality, um, legality, etc. Um, Channel 4 was added to the mix, then Channel 5, uh, and long after satellite and cable and more recently uh, unlimited amounts of internet uh, joined the system, the definition of what was public service broadcasting didn't really change for it very much. It was that which the market would not provide of its own accord, but which was valued uh, by the public. Um, so there's all types of content which uh, it falls into that category, but strictly speaking, we have had uh, over the years just eight uh, categories, news, uh, current affairs, certain types of documentaries, uh, regional programs, arts, uh, uh, religion, uh, children's, and at one point, we had what was called multicultural programming, but that was uh, never in the legislation as such, um, but was regarded by Ofcom as um, an endangered species. Uh, we still um, have news and current affairs as formal requirements on the part of uh, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, uh, in differing amounts. But most other public service genres have fallen away to a greater or lesser extent. And sadly, the legislation that underpinned the provision of public service broadcasting was amended in 2003 and 2010, such that... Um, most of the output in education has disappeared, in religions has largely gone. Uh, there's still a reasonable amount of children's mostly on uh, BBC and to some extent on uh, Channel 5. Uh, regional program is still, uh, regional news is quite well protected, but regional programming such has uh, gone into decline. Um, and broadly speaking, the, the uh, operators of uh, licensed broadcast systems, most notably BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and 5, have tried to edge the definition of PSB away from specific types of content and more towards you know, something else, being British uh, or uh, being distinctive, whatever that might mean. Uh, in other words... Uh, it, it, it evading any specific obligations as far as possible and converting them into hard-to-measure, uh, impossible-to-enforce versions. So uh, lip service is paid to PSB for the most part. Actually, Channel 4 formally gave up PSB a couple of years ago uh, as its objective. Um, but the uh, observance is more... Uh, in the acknowledgement than in the delivery. Very comprehensive review. I'll, I'll come back on some on several of those points, particularly around, uh, I suspect, around universality. But Adam, you probably had to explain PSB to Americans, as I have. 
Um, did they ever understand it? No, never. Uh, I mean, you pointed out, one pointed out to, pointed out uh, my public service broadcasters, there were small ones, as you know, in the US. But let, let me get back to uh, what's just been said, because I think David, in his normal forensic uh, manner, has touched on many of the key issues. But because this is a podcast, and I assume we hope there's going to be an audience out there, let me start in a slightly different place, which is, let me make a statement, which is, actually, there's no such thing as public service broadcast. And in a way, there never has been. Now, let me define that before it gets misquoted. As David alluded, public service broadcast is really a label for a set of techno-economic circumstances starting in around 1922, which actually governed the economics and the bandwidth, which was scarce for the transmission of signals in a relatively restricted amount of bandwidth for all sorts of reasons. So it was always a label. And the entities created by that techno-economic phenomenon, what they put out was described as public service broadcasting. And those who also sheltered under that uh, technology, scarce bandwidth to wit ITV, was also deemed as a form of public service broadcasting. This changed in 1983. Why 1983? Because that was when the bill went through, which allowed cable and then satellite television. It changed in an insignificant way, in exactly the same manner as when the first Tesla arrived in 2008. It was intimations of mortality for internal combustion engine, or uh, when Kodak revealed the first digital camera in 1975, also intimations of mortality for analog photography. It's still here, took a long time. Public service broadcasting is still here, but the intimations are there. One of the key things I think we should focus on is the word broadcasting, because the era, 1922, 83, 1922 to now, is uh, essentially the broadcast era. We're now living firmly in a post-broadcast age. Because it's a post-broadcast age, television has essentially become a pure publishing medium. And nowhere in publishing medium do we talk about assorted forms of public service publishing. Yes, there are examples, Oxford University Press or whatever, but by and large, it's not a conversation that's had. And as the technological model has shifted from broadcasting to essentially publishing, the nature of all this changes dramatically. I will yield there. Um, I'm just trying to be even more out there than David. That's all. No, fantastic. No, this is, this look, is... it, look it, Adam's uh, entirely correct in theory, uh, <laughs> but pra practice has uh, constantly defeated theory uh, in this, in that uh, we're in the internet age, but 70% of all audiovisual consumption is through broadcast media, um, licensed broadcast media, licensed by Ofcom um, in this country. So uh, despite the availability of unlimited um, content um, via streamers, via YouTube, via the internet, whatever, uh, it's still the case that um, as we are today watching um, uh, King Charles uh, inspect his provinces 
Um, we do it via BBC One or ITV or Sky News or one of the broadcast channels that's available. So we, we can't um, uh, ignore the reality, which is access to the broadcast spectrum, uh, which is uh, relied upon by the majority of people the majority of the time, is a privilege. Uh, it carries great value. It gives you access to people's hopes. If Mark Zuckerberg was invited to uh, bid for uh, all those channels, he would put up many billions of dollars because he would finally get um, a, a unique way uh, of talking to the British public. Uh, so it, it, uh, given that... Uh, all these broadcasters still, the, the ones with uh, access to the best spectrum, which uh, I will nod towards universality before John even asked the question. Um, it, it's not so much uh, an obligation, it's, it's, it's a function of the distribution system. Uh, in other words, um, uh, anyone uh, can deliver public service content whether or not they're universally available. You know, Sky um, generates an awful lot of public service content in terms of uh, news, uh, arts, etc. but it is not universally available most of the time. Sky News is pretty available, but Sky Arts, not always. So the, the issue is not whether you're universally available, it's what you do with your valuable spectrum uh, and the value can be different. So the value of channel five spectrum is less than the value of channel four spectrum because it's terrestrial signal reaches a smaller number of hopes. Conversely, BBC uh, and ITV reach 99% of homes via terrestrial signals. Uh, so that's why we apply um, a means of extracting public value um, uh, from the granting of access to this spectrum. It's, it's like planning permission. If, you know, if you're a local council and you allow someone to build a block of flats, you also require them to provide outdoor space and greens and whatever it might be. So this is a variation of the theme of exchanging one sort of value for another. Now, the value will change over time. It clearly does. Uh, and therefore, what you get back for the value of what you put in will also change. Uh, but that doesn't uh, change the nature of the transaction, only the quantum. That makes a ton of sense. I'm going to, I'm going to follow up on, the, on those points in a second, but I just want to come back to the idea of uh, the post-broadcast age, which um, I've, I've heard you speak about before, Adam. Um, I think, I, I, as far as I know, I've sp spoken to Ben Keane about this in the past, uh, I think I'm still the only person who has actually gone through an entire week's viewing ratings from Barb, because what I wanted to do was work out if there's a rising tide of on-demand viewing, where does that tide stop? And logically, it stops where the broadcasters are not creating stuff that should be viewed live. So in other words, if you go through and look at the sorts of shows that are broadcast live and what percentage of total viewing time that represents, that's probably a reasonably good proxy for how much is actually going to be consumed in a broadcast capacity rather than necessarily on, on demand versus stream. 
And interestingly, it came out at around 70% mark because so much of the stuff is stuff that is either water cooler overnight, you want to talk about it, or it does need to be consumed live, news, sport or, or two, with the big the big entertainment shows in particular. So the t- one thing that's happened, I think, is, is the broadcasters have been particularly good at reinventing themselves around the need to watch something live rather than on demand. But no, no the, the, that's that's not to say that um, the world isn't changing and that in certain key demographics, um, particularly particularly younger audiences, the, the world is, is a very different place. Well, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how do yep. those numbers lay over on the demographics? Oh, very. I mean, they, they obviously vary very significantly by demographic. Um, so the older you get, the more you're watching in your slippers and you don't really care what's on, he says, pejoratively. Um, right. uh, That's the, not the, the younger you are, the more selective you are, and the more you're going to seek out content on a variety of different formats and platforms. Six, 16 to 24s uh, watch a very small amount of live broadcast. But it, it's not so much water cooler content or even live news and sport. It's just content. It's easier to watch, uh, you know, Homes Under the Hammer or Pointless or whatever it is uh, on your live TV, even though these are pre-recorded programs or indeed repeats. Uh, You know, nearly 70% of Channel 4's output is repeats, uh, and yet it is still watched because of the (coughs) convenience factor. Um, so public service broadcasting is to do with the convenience factor. Substantially, yes. It remains default as long as broadcasting is in default mode. Now, this, by the way, uh, isn't, isn't a forever um, exchange. It is entirely possible to imagine public service broadcasting in a purely internet world. Uh, whereby uh, you, the, the uh, authorities, the government, DCMS, whoever it is, use their leverage or resources to encourage the creation of, of that which I call public service content, i.e. what the market would not of itself deliver, um, because it's a public good uh, to do so. And indeed, Currently, uh, Ofcom is of the view that you can have public service content uh, in an on-demand world quite easily. So, for instance, we as a nation, and we don't know about it, but it's true, we spend hundreds of millions of pounds a year supporting high-end television drama production and film production through tax breaks. Uh, and direct support, hundreds of millions of pounds. The great majority of the public have no idea this goes on at all. Uh, it's a, you know, a, a really very large amount of money. Quite a large chunk of this money goes to Netflix and Amazon uh, and Sky uh, and other producers of high-end content, high-end being a million pounds an hour plus for drama, etc. cetera. Uh, so we make a conscious decision we're going to spend public money supporting a certain type of content. Now, in my view, it's an entirely inappropriate application of public money. I mean, all this content would be made anyway. It's just a way of making sure that the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 aren't completely swamped uh, by Netflix when it comes to funding drama. Uh, But we could spend that money on... I know programs about um, uh, Monteverdi uh, or uh, content uh, about 
the wonders of Picasso uh, and Cezanne. It's, it's entirely up to us how we spend our public money if we choose to allocate money. Now, at the moment, most of the value that we attribute uh, to uh, supporting public service broadcasting is in the shape of spectrum, not in the shape of cash. But it is very much the same argument. Um, I'm going to sort of move the conversation on slightly. Looking at this from a... Uh, I mean, ultimately, this is a this is a policy intervention. Somebody, the, the combination of, of uh, government officials and policymakers and Ofcom have sat down and said this is the way the world should run because the UK would be a better place if it does. Um, how, from your point of view and the and the contact you've had with politicians over the over the years, what is the policy intervention for? What are the policy objectives that that PSB has been trying to deliver, and how successful has it been in doing so? Don't know who wants to sell that one. David? Well, obviously, for a very long time, it was highly successful. Uh, when you had a four-channel system uh, pre-internet, um, very large amounts of public service content was generated, um, most evidently by uh, ITV. There were quotas. You had to do a certain amount of adult education every week in peak time. You had to do children's program. You had to demonstrate you were spending serious money on it. Otherwise, you wouldn't get your license renewed. Uh, you had to do news. Uh, news at 10 was a function of the system. Uh, uh, current affairs programming this week, Weekend World, uh, World in Action, First Tuesday. They were all parts of the system as it then was working overtime. Um, loads of documentaries, documentaries in peak time, uh, religion programs, you know, songs of praise on the BBC, uh, the uh, Harry Seacombe equivalent uh, on ITV, uh, and arts programs. The South Bank Show was a function of the system. Um, it, it, London Weekend Television, in order to renew its uh, license, its franchise in those days, are uh, offered to spend money on the South Bank show. Um, there have been previous uh, arts programs, but nothing quite as ambitious as before. So basically, you had a system where incumbent ITV license holders, in order to retain their licenses, competed in terms of perceived PSB value content uh, to catch the eye of the regulator, such that as and when the renewal of the license uh, came up, they would be able to say, look how well we've done with this, 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 and this. Of course, they also had to have high quality drama, uh, good quality sports uh, provision, et cetera. But the most brownie points you could earn would be in the public service uh, uh, genres. And, and that prevailed for a long time and was highly successful. Um, obviously, all the way through to roughly the year 2000, uh, when finally um, the ITC, well, 2003 was when it was concluded, when the old regulator gave way to a new regulator, Ofcom, and the rules were relaxed. And uh, ITV had by then ceased to be a competitive franchise. It was almost a unified a set of licenses under, you know, nearly all the licenses were under the control of one company. And therefore, 
there was no possibility of dislodging the incumbent. Uh, so ITV, uh, you know, I've charted this in, in uh, a book, uh, progressively under the terms of the new legislation, chipped away at its old programming commitments. It, over the years, got rid of children's programs. Over the years, it got rid of religion. Over the years, it heavily reduced its uh, regional uh, content, uh, both news and non-news. So um, it, it, current affairs has virtually disappeared from ITV, which used to be the home of the very best uh, current affairs programs. And that was uh, tolerated because there was nothing anyone could do. Uh, Ofcom had no leverage. It couldn't prevent ITV doing what it could do because Parliament had passed a new act and created a new regulator and the act was toothless and the regulator was equally toothless. So, uh, and the BBC seeing what was going on just follows you. Uh, what is most remarkable about all the Ofcom reports on public service broadcasting since it was invented, and now they've stopped doing reports because it's so embarrassing, uh, was that the BBC tracked ITV right across the board in terms of its output of education, uh, religion, uh, documentaries, uh, uh, arts, uh, etc. And you can just and the BBC is entirely funded by public money. It, it could do all public service programming if it chose to. Of course, it would have a very small audience and everyone would stop paying the license fee. But technically, it's all public money. And it, it, so its, uh, it, its value has been cashed up, so to speak. And yet it gets away with spending large amounts of that money on daytime dross, on absolutely formulaic dramas and... Uh, nonsense content. So the qu quantity of public service content by, defined by the old genres that uh, comes from the BBC has also gone down, even though it's not touched by the legislation. Uh, it's just the market working in reverse. And was the connection, I mean, the, the, what, what you described there is a kind of a, a jargonistic, but it's an ecosystem of, of, of kind of money and intervention and institutions and remits and quotas that kind of produced a set of output that was broad. And because the viewing was constrained by the number of channels, people were going to watch it. And that all kind of slots together. The Lego kind of joins up there. But to what extent was that also a kind of conscious within the, with a, the kind of public policy bit as to what the benefit of having that sort of content, that range, that breadth, that distinctive Britishness, how are you going to define that, in terms of the social benefits and the public good that that delivered? Was that, was that clearly articulated or was it essentially a kind of industrial, industrial strategy? No, it was, it was very much articulated. I mean, Adam will remember it extremely well because for, for decades there was resistance to choice. Uh, there was resistance to cable. And to satellite. I mean, the Pilkerton Committee in 1962 explicitly rejected uh, choice and explicitly rejected cable and satellite because it might they might drain away popular content from the BBC and ITV. Um, so we we have long had uh, this uh, nanny state view of the passive viewer uh, being spoon fed. Except that, you know, a lot of people would say that the BBC as a radio monopoly was wonderful. 
uh, you know, that they learned about music from uh, the BBC as was before the advent of commercial radio. Uh, you know, there, there are plenty of people who say pre-choice was better than post-choice. Now, I'm not in that category. I'm absolutely relaxed about the maximum amount of choice. But I think you just then have to re reconfigure what your intervention is trying to do. And in my view, the intervention should simply be uh, using whatever public money you have available, might be none, but it might be some, to generate the creation of content that might otherwise not exist because it's not commercially viable or sufficiently commercially viable. And, you know, there's no obligation to do it, but that for me is what public service broadcasting is these days. Adam, I'm going to come to you. I think I've, I've, in preparation for this, read a couple of pieces that uh, that you've sort of written and spoken of in the past, and this idea that the heart of the whole, at the, uh, the heart of the whole system, is this kind of um, benevolent dictator, patrician view of the world that a, a relatively small number of people essentially kind of impose reverse censorship as to what the UK population watched. Yes, I think that's true. I think there was always a social engineering mission look i'm finding this quite a this is this is a classic conversation we all know the positions well david is absolute wall of erudition on this and the i think there are two sets of issues i mean david articulates very well the current status quo but i wonder if we could look at it i've never looked at it from that direction this is not a world I live in. This is not a world my kids live in. I discussed it with my personal trainer, as one does this morning, across over Zoom, uh, and asked him about what he thought public service broadcasting was in preparation for all this. Everybody I come across, and it may be my own privileged existence, but has a degree of Netflix in their lives, has a degree of catch-up TV in their lives, and they're dealing with this. And I would actually rephrase it. The issue is, is the way I see public service broadcasting, I see it as a David Attenborough documentary. And David Attenborough is there on the beach saying, and here we have a public service broadcasting species, and it is suffering from the global warming of rising bandwidth. And the issue that the issue that we're dealing with, <laughs> the issue that we're dealing with here is a global warming issue for public. Everything David says is right. David knows me well enough. Now I've never looked in that direction because I've you know my experience is is you never lose a bet against the status quo when it comes to technology, and and we're facing a change in the technology which changes the nature of public service content. And I was thinking as I thought about this this morning is, is Professor Brian Cox, when he's being interviewed on the BBC and to Jim Al-Khalili does a 15-minute piece on quantum mechanics, is that public service broadcaster? If he's on YouTube and does a similar interview, which I have found on quantum mechanics, is that public service broadcasting? If you can find, as you can, a, you know, a short one-minute piece by him on TikTok, is that public service broadcasting? And the thing that sort of interests me is the inability of the institutions to actually go where the new young viewers are. 
And if I wanted my grandson, age 19, shock horror, uh, to be involved watching a piece of public service broadcasting, I would have to find a way of inserting it into Elden Ring. Elden Ring, 200 million budget, biggest game of the year. Uh, I'd have to do that. And the thing which interests me in this, because what David says is right, but that's not where we're going. We can clearly see changes happening. And most of the people in Parliament, my experience, is they've got a big investment in the BBC, big investment in the status quo, and have a tendency to ignore what I would describe here as the global warming issues affecting current broadcasting. Look, uh, I, I hear what Adam says and listen to him uh, with respect, as I always do. Hang on a minute. But, you know... If Brian Cox or Jim uh, clearly want to do a, a, a podcast or broadcast uh, similar to what they do for the BBC, and they're paid to do it by the BBC, almost inevitably the question would be: How do you? Who is paying them to do it? Now they may be doing it out of the kindness of their heart. It may be like a public performance by an orchestra. Uh, you know, because they think it would be nice to do it. Uh, and, you know, during uh, COVID, there were all kinds of online get-togethers by musicians in order, you know, just to cheer each other up, I suspect, uh, but providing free content, which would otherwise be expensive. But it, 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 this is one of the paradoxes of the PSB versus free market uh, debate that has gone on for centuries, but decades. Um, easily, the highest quality drama uh, and comedy uh, that any viewer has access to is generated by not public service broadcasting, but by primarily the US, uh, the cable companies uh, and the streamers. Vastly better than anything that the BBC or ITV or Channel 4 can generate. And that's because they have a much better funding mechanism available to them, uh, which is uh, a subscription mechanism as opposed to either a license fee, uh, which is very limited, or local advertising, which is also quite limited. So uh, here we have uh, the strangeness of it. Um, I, I'm a great supporter of the idea of public service broadcasting and of interventions. But I'm also aware that if it's not properly funded, and if it's funded in an archaic fashion, it will actually be self-defeating. And most people will find out for themselves that you're better off uh, with HBO and Stars uh, and uh, all the other US cable systems uh, plus Netflix, plus Amazon, plus it. Actually, I think there are 50, 60, 70 US streaming systems, some of them immensely well-funded. So why are we intervening when the market is so good? David, <coughs> I think there are two different conversations going on here, and it's probably my fault because I'm just not that good at tuning into some of this. But the thing that I'm raising is you're right about payment, but people are moving across platforms. And how do you find the new audience? And I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in public service broadcasting because 
I was brought up with it. Uh, but I know that all the people around me are not partaking of it, or at least the young people around me. And let's not get into too much detail about this as a distraction. But I'm just saying that public service broadcasting was invented for a specific techno-economic model of 1922. It's managed to last till now, but it's under strain. How do you reinvent it for the next techno-economic model? Now, it may well be government intervention. It may be money, but it sure as hell, 15 years out, is unlikely to be broadcast TV as we currently know it because somebody may have outbid for that bandwidth. So you're right, but the only question I'm asking looking forward is how do you reinvent public service broadcasting so it's relevant to my grandson? I Entirely as you have said it, you've got to uh, work out for yourself what are the gaps? What's missing and why? Uh, what do the three wise men or women or trans who are going to decide uh, on this crucial issue, they look at the availability of what there is and actually how people behave. Because although Netflix is available to 100% of homes, it's only taken up by 70%. Uh, Sky, I think, is more like 60%. Um, so uh, it, when, when the actual lived lives, particularly of the over 50s, uh, revolve around broadcast radio and television, you have to ask yourself, if we intervene at all, what, why are we intervening and what would be the point of the intervention? Now, some of the interventions we make are to counteract the inexorable spread of technical change. So, um, you know, uh, the placement of channels on the electronic program guide, as was, uh, is a, a key issue for public service broadcasters. We want to be numbers one, two, three, four, and five on the EPG because uh, research shows that the higher up the EPG you are, the more viewership you get. So it's just a, a way of perverting um, what would otherwise be a very rational way for the world to proceed. But at any point in time, for probably the next 20 years, there will be a significant um, majority, perhaps, but very large minority uh, of viewing, which is devoted to these old-fashioned broadcasters who are given licenses by the government. And the government simply has to say, uh, is the best way of making sure that their experience of video or audio AV consumption uh, is uh, optimised to give a three and a half billion pounds to the BBC and see what happens? Is it to uh, require of ITV in exchange for a slightly reduced license fee for its spectrum that they continue to produce uh, news at 10? Or might it be, and this is where my preference would come in, that we look across the range of consumption, uh, broadcast, online, uh, games, whatever, and say, is there something that we could do as a society which would be beneficial to the consumers 
in a way which is not just uh, protecting uh, in, in you know with the rules of broadcasting in terms of uh, decency, honesty, fairness, etc., but it's actually to do with quality and range. And my view would be uh, I would abolish the licence fee and I would say to BBC, go and earn your keep, but we will give you £500 million a year that can be spent on things we want you to do, which you might otherwise not do if you're entirely dependent uh, on earning your keep uh, in the way that we prefer. And those interventions are much more... Uh, granular and specific than, uh, well, in the 1980s, you get a, you run Thames TV, and what we expect from you is the following hour by hour, day by day, month by month, in the year, all of these things have to be delivered, and if you don't deliver them, somebody else might take your licence uh, in place of you. You've just got to move the concept of why are we intervening at all into the internet age. Adam, I don't know if you want to come back on that. If not, I'm going to move on to Ofcom. Well, I was just going to say, I actually think the debate going on between David and myself is a bit like that sketch uh, from, from the life of Brian. I'm a member of the Liberation Front. What? No, I'm a member of the Front for Liberation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's no, there's no, it's there's no real difference. We both agree totally. I thought David did a paper some years ago now, uh, commissioned by the Conservative Party on the future of television. Uh, and it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And it must be at least 10, if not 15 years ago. And it absolutely charted what should happen as the BBC as a glide path out of the licence fee to adopt subscription. I think I'm vaguely on that. 18 years. Eight, well, apart from the eight, apart from that small number, direction of the and it was it was it was brilliant because it was prescient in that it realized fully that the world is going to go subscription subscription as a voluntary form of paying for all this thing, which the rest of us call a free and open market was going to be absolutely inevitable. And it was right. And it's how we get there. And David's still on that same page. I think he's absolutely right. I'm on that same page. That, that's absolutely right. I think, and the other issue that I'm raising, I don't disagree with anything that's been said. It's, it's a bit like in Colorado, the cannabis issue. If we had said 20 years ago, cannabis is going to be legal, uh, everybody would have said, you must be kidding. Uh, and then all the people who were 20 became 40 and legalized cannabis. Uh, <laughs> that's essentially where I think what the issue is that's kind of affecting public service broadcasting. So I just don't see my kids, maybe different for your kids. It's a bad statistical example, I know. But I just don't see them wishing to continue pay for the license fee. And everything they consume, they're getting off other platforms. And the other thing that... The broadcasting gerontocracy, which I'm afraid is us in various forms and other people involved in this, don't understand, don't seem to fully understand the opportunity cost. I mean, I have spent a hundred hours playing Elden Ring, not watching television. My grandson is more competent than I am, has got much further in 50 hours, not watching television. And there's a lot of things going on which my granddaughters are watching TikTok 
and not watching television. So I'm just saying, I don't disagree with what David is saying. I'm just, as ever, surfing the forces and he's detailing the forces. And it's it's how one moves forward from here. And I think if this is going to be a useful conversation for people about public service broadcasting, you know, we have to touch on what does this look like? And David's point about a 500 million pound fund the contestable fund. We've been here before in various forms, but it's not wrong as, as a piece of uh, uh, seeding to actually keep various forms of uh, more arcane public service content alive so that it can be adopted is right. And this is what we should be advocating and thinking about. I agree with that. There's an interesting um, element of this argument which gets lost sometimes. Uh, on Sunday, I was watching Frozen Planet 2. Um, yet another contribution by Attenborough and uh, uh, the BBC's magnificent uh, wildlife team to a long, long, long list of programmes that currently exist. The interesting thing about it is I, I don't call that public service broadcasting. It's a commercial product. Yeah. Frozen exactly. uh, Planet 2 will make a lot of money for the BBC. It's got a huge budget, and rightly so. Uh, it's the BBC version of HBO. HBO does far, far, far fewer hours of content uh, than the BBC. The BBC does thousands of hours. The BBC, uh, HBO does, I think, 800 hours a year. But it chooses to spend its money very... Uh, uh, in a very targeted fashion on certain things and certain things only. Uh, and it doesn't fill its schedules with pointless, pointless celebrities, pointless non-celebrities and all the other daytime stuff. But the BBC spends hundreds of millions of pounds a year generating in order to mop up the available mass audience that is too... Uh, um, how should I put it, um, settle back in its sofa, even to change channel, uh, let alone uh, to go out and make a positive decision. The great advantage of switching the BBC to subscription is the BBC would do far less, but of much, much, much higher quality, because it would realise that that's the correct thing to do. And it might be at that point in time that the powers that be, that Ofcom, say, you know what's missing? Cheap daytime game shows. That's what is missing. <laughs> and that's what we will spend our public service fund on. Any ideas? Yeah. I will come. I'm gonna, just going to loop back briefly, because I think um, inherent within the original PSB model and the policy benefits of doing it is that it was universal. And therefore, the reach and impact and scale of impact that the content was able to have were able to deliver the public benefits. The risk of going down just the market failure route, um, the conversation I had with with, uh, with John Whittingdale, um, his view was there will always be stuff that, that we should invest in for public good. And it doesn't really matter if not many people watch them. The challenge is, can you have your cake and eat it and invent a system whereby that gets consumed for the public good, even though fewer people are watching it. But that, I think, is the, is the conundrum of the hybrid model as to how to, how to make some of that stuff work. I'm just going to move on quickly to, to, um, to Ofcom. 
Um, and I, th I think you've both got different perspectives on this. Um, and, uh, and whether Ofcom is fit for purpose to kind of both blueprint and and help create this this new world whatever that looks like simon Aubrey had a great quote in a in a recent book about ofcom uh where he described it as being good at geriatric care but not necessarily having many maternity nurses so in terms of you know kind of institutional preservation and being as public service as possible under the circumstances every ofcom review has essentially echoed everything that you've said um We've had a system. It's running. It's running low on. It's running on fumes, and it needs to move to subscription at some point. Um, I guess two questions. Firstly, uh, David, you've been you've been critical of Ofcom in the past in terms of it may not be its fault, but essentially the whittling down of remit has happened really since Ofcom under Ofcom's watch since two thousand and three, and the degree to which why has that from your perspective has could ofcom have done anything differently to stop that happening or is that just the is that just the nature of the design and then adam from your point of view having been on the content board um to what extent is ofcom i mean i think you originally uh, i've heard you describe yourself in the past as being on the provisional wing of the of the ofcom content board um to, to what extent is ofcom fit for purpose in terms of being able to to think about all of this and come up with new models particularly in a, at a time when we've had, we're now on our 10th Secretary of State in 10 years. So David, let's, let's, let's start with you. I mean, to, to what extent is, is Ofcom fit for purpose in terms, of, in terms of managing the remit? The risk being that if this becomes, if, if, if we go down the route of a contestable fund and, and much more remit-based uh, as opposed to institution-based, the risk is that anybody who has a tough year is going to come back and just want the remit reviewed. Well, uh, that's what ITV did uh, with great success from 2003 to 2010. Uh, it just played the game, played the rules, and uh, uh, Ofcom and, and, tried... and paid paid a lot out in dividends afterwards. Uh, five billion pounds uh, so far uh, in dividends, um, in having saved I think thirty million a year uh, on their regional output. Look, uh, in retrospect, I, I just think it was a mistake to merge all the regulators into one, that telecoms and broadcasting were not that similar that you needed an overarching regulator. There have been very, very few issues where both parts of Ofcom have come together uh, to, to do things. So Ofcom has regulated broadcasting. It's also regulated uh, telecoms. Um, and there's no actual reason, as far as I can see, why both needed to happen. And the price we paid for the creation of Ofcom was the loss, not just of the leverage that the regulator had under the old system. That was a parliamentary decision, but of the expertise. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Ofcom generated a program board uh, with many distinguished uh, participants in it, um, not least uh, Adam. And that actually became rather good at dealing with complaints uh, and breaches of the Ofcom code. But of course, it had no relevance to quality uh, or quantity of PSB output. So whereas when I was dealing with the IBA or the ITC, I knew I was dealing with people who were going to make quality judgments 
about what I, as Director of Programs at Thames, was offering. There's nobody at Ofcom who can make those judgments or is expected to make those judgments. So the whole layer of quality control has just been wiped out from the regulatory structure, which was so essential previously. You know, when you went for your annual interview with the uh, IBA Ofcom, they would take you through your entire year's output and give you marks for your children's programming. Uh, what was good? What was bad? Why was it good? Why was it bad? For your adult education, for your religious output, whatever it might be. They'd also have plenty of views on your drama and your comedy and so forth, but those weren't quite as crucial to your license renewal. So Ofcom doesn't have the legislative tools to intervene particularly, doesn't have the skill set to make the judgments on intervention, and therefore has simply watched, particularly Channel 4, abandon two-thirds of its public service content without comment. I mean, perhaps the most obvious uh, thing is the rules about repeats. Uh, you know, under the pre-Ofcom legislation, uh, Channel 4 had very strict limits on its repeats. Technically, under Ofcom, Channel 4 could broadcast all repeats other than news and still be compliant with its Ofcom license. That is how that has happened, how much of that is down to Parliament's ineptitude and how much to Ofcom's complacence is hard to say. What I would say is in recent years, Ofcom has been substantially captured uh, by the public service broadcasters um, as a group uh, and has redefined PSB content. These days, Ofcom says, you know, shiny floor shows are public service content because they're popular. You know, Strictly Come Dancing is public service content. I mean, this is terrible stuff. Uh, and I have to say, not that there's any danger of Ofcom appointing me or my being appointed to the Ofcom board. Though uh, so they did interview me uh, uh, earlier this year for a position on the Ofcom board, but then they realised that was a terrible idea. Uh, I would be saying, Ofcom, you've got to get a grip. You've got to work out quality control and how you exercise it. So, Adam, were you captured by the PSBs? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I was on the content board for what best part of seven or eight years. And it was interesting watching Ofcom from the very, very beginning, absolute initial setup. And you had uh, David Curry and you had uh, Stephen Carter and Kit Meek and Tim Souter, vast range of amazingly capable people. And this group of people was the British television regulation, what, I don't know, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Webster and Johnson were to <laughs> <laughs> they were amazingly impressive. And somehow, as those people left, that kind of luster went. And David's absolutely right. It became an organization that saw two things very clearly. It saw that its own ability for everybody to uh, be sustaining and pay wages and all the rest of it rested on maintaining uh, essentially the UK television status quo. I'd cut a long story short, which they did. And certainly 
every meeting about the nature of television was always to do with looking in the rearview mirror. Nobody ever looked forward. And I think that gets more true with every day because they are prisoners of what I described earlier as the global warming of, of bandwidth affecting television. <laughs> no, it, it, look, Ofcom, Ofcom does publish some excellent research. Absolutely right. And it, it, it tells you what's been going on very recently uh, and, you know, projects the trend lines outwards and says, you know, in five years' time, uh, the majority of under 35s will have given up television altogether uh, because they can get everything they want off their laptop uh, or their iPad and it can all be on demand uh, and they can pick and choose what they want to see. Uh, and then you think, right, okay, so, so now what are your policy recommendations? What have you got to say to government? Nope, we're not going to say anything. We're just going to leave it there. So you, you've got this kind of policy vacuum. Actually, vacuum's an overstatement. It's policy light aspect of Ofcom. And sometimes they'll tiptoe into what should we do? I mean, there was a time when Ed Richards was the successor to uh, Stephen Carter, came up with the public service publisher uh as quite a radical thought but they hadn't worked out quite how to fund it um and th they held consultations on well what do we do next what is the best way to preserve what we value about public service broadcasting in a completely different te technological world given up on all of that it's just too much hard work it's too uphill they can't deliver anyway it's not part of, quote, their remit. And therefore, they have settled back into managing uh, a, a process of letting the public service broadcasters, the five channels and their siblings, do really what they want to do, support them in terms of due prominence, support them in terms of British content, uh, and... I find it embarrassing uh, because, it, it, you know, broadcasting regulation used to be really high class in this country, and now it's just faded away. But David, um, hasn't the market? But hasn't the market got away from it? I mean, isn't this in that? How do you regulate the vastness of current television provision in the same way? It's hard. No, I look. I, I fully agree, and they almost certainly recognise that themselves. And, and they should just be very upfront about it. And oh, just say, look, uh, this is the way of the world. This is how it's gone for the last few. It's not going to change. It's going to accelerate. If you want to intervene, why, and how, and how will you actually manage it? Uh, and just give the governments or governments of the day or the DCMS committee or whatever, some, uh, some ideas radical of the provisional wing of the Singer Foundation uh, or on the conservative wing of the Whittingdale Foundation, uh, but give, them, give policymakers some choices. At the moment, the quality of thinking emerging from the DCMS, the CMS committee and Ofcom, 
is weak and oh, very disappointing. Amen. Hallelujah. Totally agree with that. Um, so, right. So my my impossible to answer question, uh, which we're asking everybody, um, if you ask uh, if you ask people who've been um, uh, most, most recent roles have sort of been CEO of one of the institutions, what they should be doing now. Um, you know, Mark Thompson's advice was make sure you've got a plan and go into the room with a plan, because if you've got a plan, the chances are it might actually happen. So, you know, don't don't let things happen to you. And if you're in one of the public service broadcasters, you can imagine kind of going, what's what's the right outcome here for the BBC or Channel 4 or ITV, etc. I'm going to ask you to a slightly different question. If you back off, one of the reasons we're trying to have these conversations is new charter 2728. Uh, you've got three license renewals of uh, of three PSBs between now and then. You've got the uh, the the potential falling away of the ring fencing of Sky News content, uh, of Sky News budgets uh, over the same time period. So there's quite a lot in flux. You'd think that a lot of that, in terms of a blueprint, should come together before the next election and therefore before manifestos are written. And therefore, frankly, it's all going to happen in the next 12 months. So rather than thinking about it from an institutional point of view, what would you do right now to try and get the best outcome for the system as a whole? What's the right intervention, given the government is going to be pretty distracted over the course of the next 12 months? Or do, or do Because it doesn't strike me that necessarily, from what you're saying, that, that Ofcom is going to come up with a plan or DCMS is going to come up with a plan. But it sounds as though there needs to be a plan. Look, the, the biggest problem we have here is that the DCMS is a minnow. It's not just the smallest government department. It's got about a 20th of the clout in terms of spending ability of any other government department. It is therefore uh, handed over to uh, oddballs, strange people, uh, people who can't otherwise make, make it to cabinet. I mean, if you look at the list of uh, uh, secretaries of state, it's, you know, pretty thick. I mean, Oliver Dowden may be a slight exception. And of course, John Whittingdale, with his charming and, and long-term interest, uh, has been in and out of the DCMS. But looking at it over a 20-year period, the DCMS has been a huge disappointment. And therefore, the thing I would do is I would give broadcasting back to the Home Office. At least, you know, that's a, that's a top five position. And the Home Secretary would have to get it right or get, you know, beaten up. You can change your Secretary of State for DCMS three times a year and it makes not the slightest difference to anything. And we know that because it's happened. Um, you know, last time round, uh, Boris Johnson cleared out the entire set of ministers in one go. All three of them went. Uh, who cared? He didn't. Uh, so, you know, you, you've got to... Uh, you're right, John. There's uh, Nadine Doris, soon to be departed, actually, she has departed now, uh, has uh, said there will not be a license fee after uh, 2027. Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> Is, does anyone believe that? Does anyone think that her successor, successors will not be done over by the BBC? Um, uh, you've got Channel 4's license expires in 2025. Well, my recommendation, as you know, is sell it, take the money, improve it. Um, 
you, it, it, the oddity about the intervention over Sky News was, you know, excuse me, what's it got to do with you, Secretary of State? You're just using your ability to block a transaction on grounds X to demand Y. Well, I've got no objection. At least they did it. What I found really interesting was <clears throat> I asked ITM, uh, have you asked Channel 4 to ring-fence the budget for Channel 4 News? Answer came back, yes, we have. And they said no. Uh, so, you know, while the DCMS is demanding of Comcast that it funds Sky News, it doesn't demand of Channel 4, which it owns, that it rig fence the news budget there. So we've got this complete um, lack of foresight, intelligence, planning, uh, 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 strategy uh, at the heart of it. And in my view, it's because the DCMS is just, uh, you know, a goldfish in a bowl of sharks. Adam, have you got a magic wand? I have a few comments on that. One of the points that David is raising, which I think is absolutely crucial, is I find very few people in politics, DCMS, especially DCMS, but even Ofcom in these days, that really understand the bandwidth economics of their industry and where the industry is actually heading. And I've said this before. But David's point about the lack of overall macro thinking is crucial. There is nobody in the, those businesses. And don't forget, everybody who's either in regulation or in politics is not first and foremost about making a business out of broadcasting. So by definition, they understand it less. So I think that the lack of analysis in those institutions is really is really serious. My favorite Nadine Doris line of last year was when she was talking about selling Channel 4 and put forward the line which said, selling Channel 4 so you can compete with Netflix. I, I didn't hear the rest of it. I was roaring with laughter too much. And there's just no understanding in, and David knows this well, there's very little understanding within uh, those that rule British television about the, the size of the forces they're up against. I mean, do they really know what the turnover of Comcast is? I doubt it, but they'd be surprised if they found out. And the other thing about, the other thing, there's a trend going on which needs to be acknowledged. Lots of little straws in the wind. I happen to agree passionately with David about selling Channel 4. If you're worried about what Channel 4 is going to become, cut some kind of deal where you sell it to management. If it doesn't work, you can buy it back or whatever. But the interesting thing, and David will correct me, but I vaguely remember... Anthony Fry, who 12 years ago at Credit First uh, Swiss Boston, was a major banker to the UK independent sector, standing up in Cambridge and valuing Channel 4 at around about two and a half billion. It's now at best worth a billion, give or take a few. That actually makes a major statement about how Channel 4 is subscale and is actually losing value if my last set of statements are true and they need to be checked out, but I vaguely, I vaguely that they're right. So I think there are these issues out there. And in terms of the plan, I mean, I would actually, yes, do I have a plan? 
I would actually say, how do how does the world of publishing work? How do books work? How do we actually make sure that, that occasionally we can encourage uh, educational or scientific books or through scientific uh papers and all the rest of it. I would look very carefully at publishing uh, and how the whole of the publishing sector works and say to myself, television is heading this way. Netflix is a publisher. They are all becoming. HBO is a publisher. The BBC is ever increasingly becoming a publisher. What happens if you have a pure publishing industry? And how do we actually regulate a pure publishing industry so you can get the occasional interventions the contestable fund to actually do rare things that David was talking about. Because the most difficult thing for any of these institutions to deal with is their own mortality. And they're all mortal. All institutions are mortal. Uh, and planning for succession planning, which is what the whole of British broadcasting has been about this week in terms of the monarchy, succession planning is actually rather crucial. And succession planning has to acknowledge you have to have the death of one thing, and then we're going to get a rebirth, and it is going to be slightly different. And I think they need to look at the publishing sector, because publishing is content, and publishing is a market, and that is where television is heading. I, I, I'm going to add one comment on that, which is um, uh, the challenge with that for an institution that has a big brand is that nobody knows who the publisher of Harry Potter is. It's, a, it's, about, it's about the content itself. So for the institution to reinvent itself around a publishing model, uh, extremely difficult job to do. I'm going to draw it to a close on the theory that people only walk their dogs for an hour and we've just run over an hour. Uh, so I'm, we, we can definitely run this on. This has been a delight and a joy as ever from both of you. So thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, and we will no doubt hear from you again, I suspect, as the as the debates continue. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, Adam. Thanks. Thanks Take for your time. Care. Thanks, Craig, as ever, for, uh, for manning the dials. Uh, and we will see everybody soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks, everyone. In the next episode, we'll have a very different perspective to the one we just heard, because I'll be joined by Lord Hall, who was Director General of the BBC from 2013 to 2020. His long career at the BBC spanned multiple charters, multiple governments, and multiple reinventions of the BBC itself, and its role within UK broadcasting and the creative economy. It may not surprise you that he's a passionate advocate for public service broadcasting, but he's also forthright about the urgent need for a fresh debate and fresh consensus about its future. Don't forget to subscribe if you want this next episode to be easily available as soon as it's published. And thanks again for listening.